Thank you, Seth. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be here with you again this morning, and thanks, Jen, for reading God's Word this morning. Friend, just keep your Bibles open would be the, the best thing to do, so we can see that passage that we've just had read to us and uh, work through it together. The other thing is, of course, in your, on your outline, if you uh, want to follow along the talk, uh, you can jot some note down, notes down there on the back uh, for later if you want to reflect on it a little bit more. Let's pray and ask God to help us. <clears throat> Gracious God, we give you great thanks today for uh, the sun that shines. We thank you, Father, for the rain that has fallen this week. We thank you, Father, for the food that you've put on our tables, the work you've enabled us to do, and all things that we've, en we've enjoyed from your good hand. And Father, mostly as we come this morning, we are thankful for your word and pray that you will use it this morning to encourage us, to strengthen us, to grow us, to be more like Jesus, we pray. In his name. Amen. Well, one of the things we've uh, seen so far as we've been working through 1 Peter uh, is that our behaviour as Christians matters. Uh, we're in the business of seeking and doing the will of God, living in a way that honours him. <clears throat> but we've also seen, and as we do again today, that these Christians that Peter is writing to are under pressure. They're suffering some sort of persecution for their Christianity. Uh, mostly it appears to be ridicule. Probably it's some forms of social consequence and hatred. Uh, it probably also included some material penalty for not taking part in pagan worship. It's the kind of things that are, I guess, increasingly prevalent in our own society today. And like Peter's day, it won't be surprising if we face here in Australia increased legal restrictions in the future. Maybe evangelism itself might become illegal. We don't know what lies ahead of us because secularism is now the driving force in Australian society. Now, secularism is a worldview uh, and it's increasingly imposed upon our society and it's a, a form of intolerance against any form of religion, but especially Christianity. And so if we're going to uh, live Christian lives that honour Christ as Lord, as this passage actually calls us to, then we'll need to have a right perspective on the challenges that we may well face. Uh, having a right perspective means that we see things clearly, we see things rightly. I read a story this week about a, a young university student uh, who had, done, had not done well in some of her assessments and had run out of money and she needed to talk to her parents about it. Uh, she was pretty sure her parents may not take it so well, and so she decided a creative approach might soften the blow of reality. So she wrote to them. Uh, here's what she said. She said, hi, Mum and Dad. Just thought I'd drop you a line and give you a heads up about my plans. I've fallen in love with a guy named Jack. He, quite, he quit high school after year 11 to get married, but about a year ago he got divorced. Anyway, we've been going out now for about two months, and we're planning on getting married around Easter. Until then, I've, I've decided to move into his unit, in brackets, I think I might be pregnant. Anyway, I, I decided to drop out of uni last week, although I am hoping to try and go back to it sometime in the future. Then on the next page, she continued, Mum and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I've written so far in this letter is false. None of it is true. But, Mum and Dad, it is true that I only just passed French and I failed English Lit, and it is true that I'm going to need some more money to pay next semester's fees. Clever girl, don't you think? 
See, so much in life, doesn't it, depends on where you're coming from as you face your circumstances. Uh, having the right perspective is important. Uh, it's related to the way that we view something. The term actually literally suggests seeing clearly. Uh, the person who views life through perspective lenses has the capacity to see things rightly and in line with their relative importance. They can see the big picture. They distinguish the incidental from the essential, the temporary from the eternal. And so the Apostle Peter has been putting the Christian life into perspective throughout the first few chapters here as it's lived out in a hostile world. Christians, remember, he's told us, are exiles, we're sojourners, or you might say we are refugees or temporary residents in this world. But through Jesus, we've been born again to a living hope, chapter 1, verse 3. Our, our inheritance, as we've already heard Seth remind us this morning, is not in this world, but in the new heavens and the new earth, chapter 1, verse 4. Our sins have been forgiven by Jesus' death on the cross. We've been set apart as God's holy people to proclaim the excellencies of God in both word and deed. And with the hope and desire that others will be saved. And so we lose perspective when we try and settle down and make this world our home. There's a conflict going on between the two worlds that we live in. Uh, the fact that God has made me a citizen of heaven, but I'm living in this world means that there's a conflict going on. But can I just say, it's a conflict within myself, within you. Chapter 2, verse 12 says that the passions of the flesh wage war against my soul. And so I, I, I've always got to abstain from greed and pride and hate and rivalry and lust and those things that wage war within myself. But our relationship with our neighbours, our friends, our colleagues, it's not a relationship of conflict. Rather, we're to live honourable lives. We're to do good and seek the good of others. We're not to hide our Christian lives in a corner so that the world can't see. We're always to be on show before them. And so here's the perspective that we need as we live in a world that may treat us with hostility at times. And so we come to the last part of this section that began back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, which are kind of the headlines of this whole section. And Peter begins with our Christian behaviour among believers. Let's just pick it up there at verse 8, if you've got it there in front of you. So verse 8, he says uh, of chapter 3, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, all throughout Peter's letter, we get a sense of how precious the church is to God. We're loved and chosen by him. We, he's made us members of his families and heirs of eternal life. He saved us through the death of his own son. He's made us a royal priesthood and a holy nation. He's taken us in. We belong to him. But we also get the, we, we also get the absolute necessity of ensuring that the church is precious to us. We need to see the church as precious. He calls us to a sincere brotherly love in chapter 1, verse 22, and to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And now he's calling, notice, all of you, that's what he says, all of you, the whole church, who call yourselves Christian, to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. See, out there in the world, we are told to expect to face opposition from time to time. 
but not in the church. The church ought to be a place of glorious refuge, a place where love is expressed towards one another every day. The unity of mind that we are to share is the mind of Christ himself. It's the aim, a shared aim of living for and proclaiming Christ. It's not thinking the same about every issue necessarily. And so as we take seriously the call on our lives to live godly lives and to share the gospel, we will likely be bruised by the world. And as a church, we actually need to care for one another. And it's easy, isn't it, to criticise the way that another person does something. But we're called on to show compassion and humility towards our brothers and sisters. And so if we, we genuinely do this, then uh, do the way that we're called to, then the church will be a very attractive place. And so we should be a very attractive place. I mean, some Christians may be rejected by their family. Some will be rejected by their former friends or their colleagues. But in the face of worldly rejection, we're to love one another with tenderness, compassion, humility. See, do you genuinely love all of your brothers and sisters here like this? Because if not, you actually need to take heed of this. You need to take it seriously. And so what about our behaviour then as Christians among unbelievers? Now the following uh, verses fill out the headline verse back in chapter 2 verse 12. Uh, look at, let me just remind you of 2 verse 12. He says there, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, the people around us will always see how we live as Christians. And their view of what a Christian is and what difference Christ makes in this life is determined by what they see in us. And it's pretty depressing sometimes, isn't it? But how do you know what a Christian is? Well, he's a Christian and that's what he does. And so people judge the Lord Jesus Christ by the ways in which we live. And so Peter goes on in chapter 3, verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. See, Christians are to live without retaliation. And we find that hard, don't we? Revenge feels so right at times. Defending myself feels the right thing to do. They deserve it, we tell ourselves. Now, there was an article in the media last week that uh, was disparaging towards Bible-believing Christians. And when I read the article, there were already over 400 reader responses. And so I thought I'd just kind of read the first few uh, to see how people were responding. <clears throat> I only read about 30 or 40 responses. And every single one was abusive, hate-filled, mocking towards Christians and the church. And besides a deep sadness, all I felt like doing was getting on and letting those morons know how wrong they were, which I didn't do, just so you know that. But, um, but that's not what we've been called to, is it? Look back again at chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, we do not retaliate. In fact, we're called to do the opposite. We're called to bless. We're to seek their good and ask God to do them good. And so instead of re retaliating, 
reach out and love those with whom you profoundly disagree. Be interested in the person. Reach out even, when, even to those who despise you, who hate you, who mock you. And as we do that, it's an assurance that the blessing God has already promised is ours, is truly ours. It's the blessing for both now and into eternity that comes to those who stand firm in their faith and who use their words for good rather than evil. Which is what Peter is getting at by quoting from Psalm 34, the psalm that Jed read for us a little earlier. Um, Look there in verses 10 to 12, he quotes a part of it. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now Peter uses this psalm to assure his readers that even if they're insulted or falsely accused or even worse, they shouldn't use their tongue in the same evil manner. They're not alone. God is with them. He listens to them and ultimately will do them good. But that doesn't mean that as Christians, under God's blessing, that we will escape the hostility of the world in a, of a world that's in rebellion against God. And so how should we handle hostility if or when it comes our way? Well, let's just pick it up there from verse 13. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now Peter says that most of the time, if you live as a good citizen and worker, you won't be harmed for living as a follower of Jesus. But have you noticed um, the significant change that has taken place in Australian society? I mean, Christians used to be respected in our society. Our churches were good and important institutions. Being a minister was a noble office. But secular Australia is now suspicious of Christianity. We're now the problem rather than part of the solution. Ministers are are no longer trustworthy. In fact, I've been notified that I am not eligible for jury duty because of my Christian bias. On top of that, churches are suspect and Bible-believing Christians are bigots. So how then are we as Christians likely to get a hearing when we tell people about Jesus? Well, I think Peter helps us here where Uh, helps us see here that it comes down to who we fear. And there's enough evidence around to suggest that standing up publicly for Christian values is now a bit of a dangerous thing to do. Uh, If you're a Christian who wants to avoid pain, then you know the best thing to do is to keep your head down. Don't wear your Christianity too publicly. But see, that's not what we're called to, is it? We're to live godly Christian lives in full view of the world and to speak the good news about Jesus so that people can be saved. That's the loving and good thing to do. But some people won't like it and you'll probably cop some flack. And so what should you do? Well, Peter tells us what we should do. See verse 14? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled. See, even if you suffer like Jesus did for you, have no fear of them. Do not fear those who hate you or who mock you or try and embarrass you in front of others. Don't be afraid of those who unfriend you or those who cut you off from a social group. 
Do not fear those who tell lies about you and put you down to others. Do not fear those who threaten you in any way or who try and force you to do something wrong. Have no fear of them, Peter says. See verse 15? But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do not fear those who would cause you to suffer. Instead, fear God. Honour Christ the Lord as holy. And always be ready and prepared to defend your hope in Jesus. See, don't pull your head in. Speak the gospel out. See, if we're afraid, the gospel won't be preached and people won't be saved. And notice how comprehensive it is. Always being prepared to anyone who asks to always be prepared. You know, before I became a minister, I worked for several years in a, a large insurance firm. People knew pretty much straight away that I was a Christian. Uh, I used to get some good-natured good kind of ribbing from time to time that I could laugh along with. Uh, but there was one guy who seemed kind of hell-bent on ridiculing my faith and destroying my credibility. Uh, he would often publicly attack me about certain Christian views. Uh, I would generally try and do my best to answer his objections without getting offended. Uh, then on one occasion, our company had an overnight conference in a large hotel in uh, King's Cross. Uh, and the evening's dinner, after the evening's dinner and keynote address, a, a bunch of young guys decided they wanted to go for a walk around the cross. Uh, a few guys from my own department, including this particular guy, uh, were going, and so I decided to go along with them. And at one point, a few of them decided that it would be, uh, that it would be good for us all to go into a strip joint. And so my alarm bells went off. Uh, I knew that there was no way as a Christian that I could do that. And so I thought, I'll, I'll just tell a couple of guys at the back of the pack that I'm heading back to the hotel and not make a big deal of it. But as I told them, this other guy overheard me and uh, put on a scene. So that at the top of his voice, he said, come on, Rod, come in with us. Uh, don't be such a loser. Uh, he aimed for maximum embarrassment and maximum pressure for me to cave and to go in. But I knew I could, couldn't honour God and do that. And so I said, I'm sorry. And I just I walked back uh, to my own hotel, uh, which in the middle of King's Cross in the middle of the night is a very scary thing to do, can I just say? But anyway... Anyway, a few weeks later, this guy asked me if he could come to church with me, and I was shocked. Uh, he was the, the last person that I could imagine coming to church. And so when I asked, he told me that he'd become a Christian. And he said, I know that I've given you a hard time over the years, but you're the first Christian that I know who wasn't a hypocrite. Uh, and when you didn't walk into that strip joint that night... I knew Christianity was true. See, when we live genuine Christian lives wherever we go, we never know who's watching. But if we fear people more than we fear God, then we'll compromise our behaviour and we'll compromise our witness to Jesus because we won't have a good conscience. See verse 15 again? But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, 
so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. See, we, we might not get a hearing because they respect us, but they may in the end give us a hearing if we respect them. See, there's no guarantee that a a person who causes us to suffer will respond to our defence of the Christian faith. But if we live lives that honour Jesus Christ, that are lived with integrity before God and man, then we will never be put to shame, even if those who wrongly accuse us may be. Well, this final passage is considered tricky in some ways, and of course it is, but as uh, most have recognised, its main message is actually pretty clear. Uh, In verse 18, if you can see it there in in front of you, Peter reminds us that Christ also suffered to save us. See verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, one of the aims of this passage is to encourage us to stand firm in the true grace of God. The beginning of the passage, verse 18, reminds us that Jesus suffered for our salvation, to bring us to God. But God vindicated Jesus by raising him up from death through his spirit. And then if you look at the end of the section to verse 22, look what it says there just before verse 22, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers, having been subjected to him. See, Jesus, who was subjected to suffering at the hands of wicked humanity now has every power and authority in the entire universe in subjection to him. And so the example of Jesus here is for our encouragement. The big point is that Christians who suffer unjustly have nothing to fear. And we can endure because of our union with Jesus. We can stand firm now because we know that our temporary suffering will also end in glory. And then in between, in verses 19 to 21, Jesus is proclaiming God's victory over all that is evil. Just as we now proclaim the gospel so that people who are still living in rebellion to God can come to Jesus and have their sins forgiven and share Jesus' glory for all eternity. Isn't that what we want for people? I don't intend to go into great detail here about the rest of this passage, because we've already seen the main idea, but verse 19 is a reference to Jesus proclaiming his resurrection victory over imprisoned evil spirits from the time of Noah, back in Genesis 6, right at the beginning of the Bible. And then in verse 20, we're reminded that just as Noah was rescued from an evil world by the ark that God made him build, so Christians are saved from an evil world by baptism. And in verse 21, Peter is not saying that baptism itself saves us, He's saying that baptism corresponds to the Ark of Noah in that it symbolises our dependence on all that Jesus has done to save us. So here is the perspective that we need if we are going to continue to do good, if we are going to continue to have the mind of Christ as Christ looks at our world and died to save it, even if it leads to our suffering in some way. See, we may not be living in a safe world, But we are safe in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which is why he says to us over in chapter 5, verse 7 of 1 Peter, cast all your anxieties, all your fears, all your cares on him because he cares for you. So fear God 
not man. And keep your conduct among unbelievers honourable, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify not you, but God. See, our task is not to fit into the world and its ways. Our task is to declare the good news, that Christ suffered and died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. What a saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our saviour. And you are our Lord. And you are our model for how to live life in this world. So please, Lord, help us to keep looking to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Roger's going to come and continue to pray. Thanks.